0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to From Under the Rubble on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I am joined after a bit of a summer break uh, by Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us again. Uh, It's a pleasure to be back. Well, we're very happy to have Dr. Fleming back, and for episode six of our ongoing series, today we're going to be discussing the Burkini ban that happened here in... Uh, France, I should say the bikini unban because there was originally a ruling that, uh, that it was illegal as a, as a, as a rule for, for various cities in France. And then what looked to be a rather contrived situation, a woman alone on a beach, no towel, no book, uh, just sort of napping because that's what you do when it's 95 degrees outside on the beach is take a nap in your bikini. And there's a professional photographer nearby to capture this, also apparently uh, accidental. But what was not accidental was the instant reaction, both in France and around the world France, baptized by laïcité, where we saw French people applauding and sort of calling the lady names. But there was instant blowback around the world that this was unbelievable, that uh, police were standing around forcing this woman to undress, which led to a rather hurriedly uh, um, called court case, uh, challenging this, uh, the... Ban was temporarily suspended, and that's where we are here, Doctor Fleming. What has been your thoughts as you've been following this story, and, and where you think about it uh, at this moment?
1: Well, um, Stephen, as, as you know, probably better than I, the modern French history is uh, bound up in the and and uh, the history of many other European states is bound up with the idea that the state is strictly secular and neutral as regards religion. Of course, you can't be strictly secular and neutral. But, uh, you know, the French Revolution, as everybody recalls, uh, uh, first nationalized the Catholic Church and then basically tried to destroy it. And it was only under Napoleon that they signed uh, Concordat with the Vatican allowing uh, some freedom for uh, Catholics in, uh, in France. A similar thing went on in the, among the Piedmontese Kingdom of, uh, of Italy, and when they of course took over Rome, there was this huge split in, in Italy, which exists to some extent even today. Uh, between Italian Catholics and uh, secularists, or, or Laic Catholics, who pretend to be Catholic on the one hand, but just think the Church ought to stay out of the business of morals and, uh, and society in general. And this was true in Austria, you know, so-called Josephism. So all across Catholic Europe, uh, these countries, uh, even when they were nominally Catholic, tried to marginalize the church that was the big move of the late 18th and throughout the 19th and early 20th century and so now the the, the, the French have this secular state and uh, you you can probably uh, elaborate on uh, elaborate on this much better than I can but where uh, you were not allowed to display religious paraphernalia insignia garments etc in um, in in public buildings, so it uh, it's it's uh, illegal in France in uh, to to go and uh, <laughs> for example to be to be displaying a cross or a religious garment to go in and get a wedding license or to participate in any kind of civil activity. So this is all fine uh, for the French as long as it was only restricting the rights of Christians, particularly Catholic Christians. Now with increasing uh, increasing numbers of Muslims in their society, the Muslims come from a tradition where they don't particularly uh, understand laicism or secularism and they're not prepared to accept it. And so they're uh, at every level uh, across Europe, Muslims are challenging this, uh, these notions. And so here we are uh, where after, you know, 200 years of, of uh, French secularism, they're now confronted with a claim that it is bigoted for them to apply the same rules to a religion which is after all quite alien to France and its traditions.
0: Well, Can we go a bit deeper with this, Dr. Fleming? Are the burka and the burkini, are these really religious garments in the way that when I think of a religious garment, I'm thinking of a priest chasuble or a cassock, something like that, that identifies someone as particularly... Uh, in a religious tradition, I I suppose a certain fashion that is around in the Islamic world today, I don't know that that's necessarily religious garb. Um,
1: Many Muslims think that women are uh, compelled to wear these various outfits, because there are are several, depending on whether you live in Afghanistan, where they wear this complete uh, uh, covering, or in Persia, that is Iran, or... The very strict covering that's used uh, among Arabs. None of this is prescribed in the Quran or in any uh, authoritative Islamic tradition. These are largely uh, ethnic traditions and you know cultural displays. Um, for let's just compare it with a couple of things. Say in uh, the post-Vatican II uh, tradition, it's like. Uh, uh, demanding that uh, all restaurants serve fish on Friday. Um, it's not. It, it's not like for, now within the Christian tradition, it is said that uh, men may not wear their hair long, and uh, you know, dressed like a woman. And women have to have their head covered in church, uh, just as men may not cover their head in church. But there is uh, whatever the whatever the object of these fashions are for Christians, they are prescribed in the Bible. Now many Christians say, "No, I, I don't. I don't like those, and they, and they don't keep them." And this includes even uh, modern Catholics. But nonetheless, they, they are part of a religious tradition. Whereas the the burka and the chador, etc., are not. They are merely ethnic traditions that they associate vaguely with religion, and in the case of these Muslim countries, of course, there is a concern, first of all, for uh, the purity and chastity of women, but there's just as much there's a concern for controlling women. Women are felt to be a a kind of demonic sexual animal force, and they have to be completely uh, covered up for their protection and for the protection of the, uh, of the sexual purity of the male. Remember that this is a tradition which says that if a brother-in-law uh, rapes his sister-in-law, uh, without, without, and if she doesn't have any witnesses, and she makes a complaint, she could be executed for committing adultery with her brother-in-law, for tempting him, for leading him along. Mm-hmm. So these garments, you can imagine what they, what they represent, say, to a feminist. But even more so what do they represent toward a normal european or american religious person because the garment says that the woman is essentially unclean and needs to be subjugated i mean there's a lot of reasons to object to it
0: and and that's that's fair dr fleming but i think that most people and i would say decent people were upset you know, if we if we look apart from the religious history and and all of the points you made about the garment, the idea of asking a woman to undress in public for this, for this uh, apparent uh, upholding of laïcité, I think it, it might do well for some of our listeners to to know a little bit more about this principle of the French state. It's something that I I unfortunately uh, received some quote-unquote indoctrination on during my immigration classes here in France. But it, I, interestingly, Dr. Femi, I almost feel as though the religious fervor that's supposed to uphold laïcité, uh, ironically a religious fervor, it's almost run its course because I was on vacation when this incident happened. And uh, with some of my French friends, and they were very embarrassed when the news story came out and when the ban was lifted, they said, I'm, I'm very glad that this happened. This was embarrassing for us. So it seems that even the born and bred French people, laïcité is not really a principle to be upheld with the religious fervor of ticketing somebody uh, on a beach for. So in a certain way, I almost think that laïcité is uh, past its time.
1: Well, you know, it's like um, these movements—all the revolutionary movements—always run out of steam because they're replaced by other movements. Um, You know, today the uh, the the secular religion is more likely to be transsexualism and environmentalism. (laughs) Saving the planet for same-sex couples or uh, transgenders is the is the new religious enthusiasm. And so, uh, making war on various primitive cults uh, in, in in the mind of these postmoderns, whether the primitive cult is Islamic or Catholic or Buddhist, that that just seems so passe. So yeah, I I, I agree with you. It's a little bit like you know feminism. If when you meet uh, when if you go to a party and there is a seventy-five-year-old feminist talking like Gloria Steinem. The, the 20-somethings roll their eyes. I mean, sure, yeah, I know, I've got a job. Yes, that's fine. I can do what I want. I can live with whom I want. That's fine. Why do we have to talk about it? They're, they're not interested. And in fact, you find uh, some younger women who, even though they still... Uh, walk the feminist line and talk the feminist talk, they understand it really isn't all that nice uh, to be a modern woman who is taken advantage of by an employer, taken advantage of by boyfriend. So yeah, these it's. I, I think you're right. I think laicism has run out of steam and it's become boring.
0: When Europe looks across uh, the ocean, um, Dr. Fleming, to the United States, they think of God's God, guns, and gays. They think that's what uh, America's uh, riled up about. But interestingly, for those who actually take a look, the U.S. Constitution and, and really how the course of history has flowed for the United States, can we really say that it's a, a pro-Christian country or either in, in our history or in its current uh, incarnation?
1: No, not at all. Um, you know, we've gone through uh, several phases, you know, um, there is no real American founding. That's w- that's one of the religious myths of American life. That there's something called a founding. Uh, a num, you know, there were various settlements some uh, in uh, which became uh, organized colonies. Many of them were already mixed. I mean, the the colonial history I know best, South Carolina, was it had a very strong conflict between. Uh, Anglican settlers who came largely by way of Barbados and the Caribbean, and uh, and uh, Puritans and Congregationalists and Independents who came straight from England. They were and when in the early days outnumbered uh, the uh, the Anglicans. And then the Huguenots came in and and uh, unexpectedly joined the Anglicans. So uh, the history of South Carolina is a history of how you. They had to have religious pluralism because they could, you couldn't form a government if uh, on the basis of anything like a consensus. Now in Puritan New England they had something more like consensus, but when these 13 colonies came together what kind of religious unity is there other than a vague sense uh, that there is a God and there are scriptures and they had, they had tests in early, uh, early constitutional America. There were t- you, to be able to hold office, I think in all 13 states, you had to at least say you believed in God but that covered Muslims and Jews and uh, Buddhists and Confucianists and everybody else. In some places you had to profess uh, Jesus Christ or, the, or some kind of Christian creed but the, it, it was very difficult and impractical Besides which, the, uh, the, 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 the great men who uh, organized the Revolution and wrote the Constitution, almost none of them was an Orthodox Trinitarian Christian. Not George Washington, not Thomas Jefferson, not John Adams, and certainly not the Freemason uh, uh, philanderer uh, Ben Franklin, who is the kind of person that a decent family wouldn't let uh, into its house. <laughs> So, uh, you know, so, the, so the, 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 the Constitution, it doesn't really mention, the, uh, the, the original draft doesn't really mention religion, and the point of the First Amendment was not to guarantee religious freedom to anybody, to, but to prevent the federal government from interfering in any religious organizations which the states might undertake. So the federal government could not, as they as during the at the beginning of the revolution, they were afraid the English were going to do, could not establish the Anglican Church in the United States. Uh, Also, they were afraid that the English in the uh, in the uh, in the Ohio Territory were going to give privileges to Catholics because it was lumped in with Quebec. And uh, so there, 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 were, there were fears before the revolution that different forms of Protestantism were not going to be acceptable under the regime. So one of the concerns after the Constitution was ratified was how to protect uh, the states from a, from a federal government which might start acting like the government of George III. So under, under that rule, for example, when, um, when the Clemson University prevented, uh, last week I think it was, prevented a student from praying on, uh, on the campus of Clemson on the grounds that he was not in a so-called free speech zone, well, of course, the whole conservative Republican universe was up in arms. This is, this is, a, this is unconstitutional. Well, actually, no, it's not unconstitutional under the original understanding of the Constitution. South Carolina had a perfect right to establish the Anglican Church, and in fact, the Anglican Church was established under the Constitution. People were taxed for the support of, uh, of Protestant ministers, and uh, there were all sorts of religious tests within the state. And the whole point of the First Amendment is to tell the federal government, the federal courts, the Congress, you cannot interfere in this. If, if the, uh, Clemson's Clemson state university, and under the Constitution, under the, under the First Amendment, they have a perfect right to, to, to create, uh, to, to make it an Islamic university. There's no, there's no question there. Now, under the Constitution, which has been turned upside down since the 14th Amendment, passed, by the way, illegally in the 1860s, since, since the 14th Amendment and since a series of, uh, of dictatorial Supreme Court resolutions the Constitution of the United States now justifies moves to to outlaw Christianity, to keep Christianity out of the schools. The complaint uh, against uh, Clemson is very amusing. It's coming from people who accept the fact that every day when little Johnny goes to school, little Johnny is not allowed to pray in school, is not allowed to read the Bible in school, sometimes not even in study hall can he, can he be seen to be reading scripture. So we have a federal government and many state governments which fall in line, in fact almost all of them virtually now, even southern states, w- making war on Christianity. That's the new constitution of the United States. The old constitution was fairly neutral, uh, which allowed states to, 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 have, uh, to establish churches or, and to have religious tests. The new constitution uh, forbids the states to do anything to encourage religion, and in fact they're supposed to discourage.
0: Dr. Fleming, when you mention the reaction of the conservative blogosphere or whatever it might be called, I I can't help but, but wonder, aren't these just the the automatic motions of a, a dead body when it 's when it 's being poked, I mean the idea that this is where we 'll make our stand is this uh this poor kid at Clemson who 's oppressed I mean, the war was lost a long time ago, buddy. I mean, if you want to have this uh engagement here or there uh, that's that 's all well and good, but uh, to think that this is going to be some new crusade or some new line in the sand, I think is humorous uh, the, as you as you point out the the principles on which you could make a stand were either never there in the first place or have withered over the last century.
1: The uh, it, it is, as you say, it is very amusing. And when you hear uh, uh, Ted Cruz making a speech on this, or Glenn Beck making a comment, or even Rush Limbaugh, who is uh, cynical enough to know better... Um, you hear the uh, that this this is a this is a christian country founded on christian principles and uh, we need to reassert under the constitution our rights as christians you what know, have they, they, they obviously have never read the constitution at least seriously never looked at what the words actually say and they obviously know nothing about american history and but finally if as long as they continue to say this as long as the conservative movement is dedicated to the delusion that we're living in a Christian country and we just need to elect Christian politicians to high office. As long as this is the case, they are part of the problem and they cannot be part of any solution.
0: Uh, Dr. Fleming's discussion of these principles in relation to the, the war the fight for marriage uh, would be uh, best listened to in the first episode of Christianity and classical culture entitled getting marriage straight, which you can find obviously in the podcast tabs on the main site. Dr. I okay. You're talking about Ted Cruz and you're talking about, uh, other political figures. It's an election year where we're just a few weeks away from yet another uh, election debacle in the United States. Um, People are going to say, all right, Dr. Fleming, how does this apply to someone like Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump Um, when we're talking about uh, the idea of the state being neutral towards religion or being anti-religious? When Napoleon drew up the concordat, the pope knew that Napoleon didn't care about the church. He just needed the church to get in line so he could go about his other conquests and and things that he wanted to pay attention to so the pope knew what he was getting into at that time with napoleon there's no hope for any kind of concordat with with the upcoming clowns so what are we supposed to look at in terms of these candidates and this argument
1: yeah i'm glad you brought up napoleon because in a way it 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 it, it is it is useful and relevant you're right napoleon had no use for the church and by the way neither did mussolini when he uh, made a concordat with the Vatican and allowed, which allowed eventually, you know, Catholics to become a uh, a uh, politically politically active force uh, during 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 the fascist years, but especially in the years following World War II, these are Napoleon and Mussolini and uh, Donald Trump, are although he's <laughs> he's not exactly the man they were, he is uh, they're all pra- they're all pra- secular and pragmatic. And they lack uh, they they lack that essential quality of American politicians, which is hip- smarmy hypocrisy. What when uh, you know when Pius the Seventh signed the Of course, he was a prisoner. Napoleon threatened him with violence, and uh, and he saw through at one at one point when he when the Pope was dragging his heels. Napoleon came in from hunting. He was dressed in hunting clothes. He Bursts into the Pope's apartment at you know at midnight or whatever and says, You're going to sign it now, you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. And the Pope, of course, one Italian looking at another, and the Pope just said, Che Pagliaccio, what a clown. And um and was 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 unmoved because the Pope, like and by the way, a very great Pope, Pius the Seventh, like Napoleon, was an Italian pragmatist, like Mussolini, an Italian pragmatist who made tragic, tragic missteps for his country. What in, in looking at this election, both during the primary season and now that it's a contest between two very unlovable candidates, the big mistake that uh, Christian conservatives made was to pay attention to rhetoric. In other words, if Ted Cruz talks like a Christian, or previously Mitt Romney pretended to be a Christian, or you know Marco Rubio, or all of these despicable hypocrites, you know acting a part, which is by the way what a hypocrite means in Greek, an actor. When when our Lord denounces them for, as Pharisees and hypocrites, he's they're they're people who act the part of being a faithful believer.
0: Um,
1: I think this, dilute this, this, this willingness to accept the politician's dis- description of himself, his, his public profession as being a Christian. This is this goes back again to the belief that we live in a Christian country, we have a Christian culture, even though Kim Kim Kardashian and Kanye West are our perhaps our national symbols, um, and that we and, and we go through life from day to day month to month year to year with with this with this utter complete fantasy. And so therefore when Hillary Clinton talks about quote my faith her faith is important to her. <laughs> we know what she has faith in and if it's a supernatural being it's not one you want to meet on a dark night. <laughs> uh, the uh we she has behaved with complete lack of Every sense of scruple or decency that it's possible that it's possible to 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 live without, um, and so when we have reached the point that the Clintons could talk about their religious convictions and expect <laughs> expect, there are even so-called you know liberal evangelicals who will support them because they're you know because they're they're Marxists who who believe that uh, that. Uh, the Gospel writers simply forgot to put in massive programs of wealth transfer and uh, third world charity and etc. They, they, they left that out but that's really what Jesus had in mind was the, the modern gl- global uh, Marxist state that we're trying to construct. So I, I would say that in for a serious Christian to vote either in a primary or in a general election He has to set aside all of the rhetorical postury. If people say they're conservative, people say they're Christian, people say they believe in the Constitution, just assume they're lying. Maybe they're not always lying, but you you have to assume they're lying, at least to the extent they're not going to do anything about it if elected. How many pro-life Republicans have run for office, both for for the Senate, for, for the House of Representatives, as governors, and as presidential candidates? And which of them has lifted a finger? The answer is certainly, at the national level, none of them. None of them. So I think we have to just assume that we're not going to have anybody who is uh, a robust, muscular Christian in, at a, at a high-level office who's going to do something. So then you have to vote uh, self-interest. Who is going to rob more of my tax money? Well, we know that'll be Hillary Clinton. Who, is, who, who will be more likely to leave me alone and leave other countries alone and not get us into disastrous conflicts such as we've been in for the past 16 years. And there, uh, I think, a, a, a reasonable, pragmatic uh, person who uh, has serious Christian faith should have no trouble in voting for a rascal like Donald Trump. Yes, he's like Napoleon. Yes, he's like a lot of uh, French political leaders. But of course, he has he has he has the manners of a total barbarian, and he has absolutely a, a, a tin ear when it comes to any human sensitivity. But the question is, would would he ruin the country as rapidly as the alternatives? And I think not. I'm I'm quite encouraged by his candidacy.
0: Some might say, Dr. Fleming, that we have these stage props around the American form of government that still leads people to believe that they're in this pseudo-Christian milieu, whether it's the Pledge of Allegiance or whether the fact that the president takes his oath upon the Bible. Uh, But Some might say, should we just strip this away and and rid ourselves of these illusions that that they mean anything? It's not even a constitutional requirement that the president swear upon the Bible. I I think I remember LBJ took his uh, oath of office on on, – a, a missile, a mass missile, while he was on Air Force One. So, there's there's no requirement to have these things. Stripping them away would might might wake some people up to the reality that there is no connection between the U.S. government and religion.
1: The um, it's, um, it's 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 a serious point you're making. Uh, Ten years ago or twenty years ago, I would have probably responded by saying well so you know if 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 hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue then maintaining some of these fictions allows people to live from day to day and you know g- get along and uh, try to lead a christian life within a, a non-christian society to, i think we uh and i think i was wrong then oh, well but very poetic dr
0: funny yeah <laughs>
1: I think that the re I think we should have s- knocked this stuff out uh, sometime in the nineteen twenties. Who is the last president who was a believing Christian? I mean, I don't mean somebody who you know uh, joins the church because it's a place to make good business contacts or to or to meet nice girls or all the all the reasons why people join churches, but.
0: Somebody with some kind of conviction.
1: I, I, I honestly don't know.
0: Certainly. Would you say? Would you say Dwight Eisenhower? Would you say maybe Dwight Eisenhower, old uh, boy from Kansas? I don't know. He was such a Machiavellian
1: cynic throughout most of his career. It's hard to think of him as a uh, a Christian. Um, certainly not. Uh, certainly. I I don't see any evidence of that in Truman. Certainly not in not in Roosevelt. I mean, I, I honestly don't know. I when when I think of presidents who actually took their religion seriously or prayed in, in, in their in their grief, maybe um, maybe um, who's the uh, who is the least popular president? Uh, the, uh, the 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 um, why is the friend of Nathaniel Hawthorne? um President um, President before Buchanan, I'm having I'm having, a, <laughs> I'm having a, a mental block. The um, he had uh, Jefferson Davis was his Secretary of War. His, his son died and uh, he took to the bottle. But I mean we, we have um, it's absurd that but as soon as I started to look for, search for the name, I of course I, I... is it Franklin Franklin Pierce? Franklin Pierce, Franklin Pierce. I, uh, there's, some, there's some evidence to me that Pierce was a Christian but uh, and and, of course, uh, uh, one of the greatest American presidents, Jefferson Davis, I didn't say yes. President of the United States, but American president, David in, in Christian. And, indeed, and, uh, and uh, by the way, a pro-Catholic Christian. he uh, he was considering conversion, but he went to Cuba and unfortunately saw <laughs> saw the Catholic clergy in their full glory, and uh, that discouraged him. but he had been he had been sent to a, a Catholic Academy in his childhood and was extremely uh, impressed with uh, with the priests who taught him. It,
0: but uh, It's interesting you mentioned Jefferson Davis, Dr. Fleming, because as you were saying, you know someone who's a believe uh, someone who's a believer I was thinking well maybe not in the presidency but many of the generals of the of the Confederacy oh, absolutely. I would say fit into I mean if, if anyone has taken the time to read uh, Robert Robert E Lee's Diaries I mean the man was shot through with piety um, Reed, and
1: Jackson most of them the uh, the the only sort of pagan uh, <laughs> at a high rank was Bedford Forrest. Uh, he, he believed in religion, but maybe for other people. His wife converted <laughs> him, though, uh, after the war, and she couldn't get him to quit drinking or quit cussing. But uh, and so when the preacher would come to dinner, and they were obviously going to be Presbyterians. When the preacher came to dinner, uh, they they, were, well, they always lived in fear of what uh, <laughs> of what Forrest might come out with. But he his it was a... In those you know, um, Protestants in those days, uh, they, could, they could go to church with their family, but if, when they got religion in their heart, they called it a conversion. They, it was a genuine conversion experience, and this is what, what American Catholics and Protestants have to have today. We are mostly, ch- church, religion is a kind of social convention. And uh, what m- most of them need something some equivalent of the fundamentalist evangelical uh, experience of being born again. because we have to, you have to be recommitted and rededicate yourself to something other than a bingo night uh, once a week.
0: Hmm. Well, you mentioned that we might have knocked down some of these stuff some of these things in the 1920s. We're here in 2016, Dr. Fleming. uh, What should we do now?
1: I think uh, one of the things I try to tell people is uh, make sure that you don't go out of this world as dumb as you were the day you entered. And what we need to do is to first of all understand where we are and how we got here and realize that that uh, Christian faith is not simply some abstract religion that we should have freedom of religion. The whole argument for freedom of religion is nonsense. Nobody came to America looking for religious freedom. The Puritans came here looking to be able to set up a religious establishment by which they would kill anybody who disagreed with them. Uh, the, the the lovely pilgrims and Puritans were not uh did not believe in religious freedom and in fact that we, we there's never been a society in the world except so, places where atheism and agnosticism and secularism dominate those are societies that believe in religious freedom because they believe in in religious indifference. the only time now that it's interesting that uh, religious tensions are slackening in Ireland because both Catholics and Protestants are giving up their faith. So to give up this myth of religious, I think toleration is fine, and setting up systems by which people don't kill each other is a wonderful objective for any society. But to talk about freedom of religion as if, well, you, uh, I have Jesus Christ, you have, you have Mohammed, and our friend here has Satan, um, you know, what kind of, that, that, that's nonsense. It's like, well, I, I, I have, if I have that kind of freedom, then I have the, I have the freedom to uh, have my wife killed on my funeral pyre. I mean, there, there are all sorts of religions that practice abominations that we don't believe uh, that, that these things should be tolerated. So we have to get rid of this nonsense and to understand that religion is not part of our government life. It is not a it's not a private thing. It's not just my personal belief because a true religion commits us to a community of faithful people. But but it is not but that commitment, that and that community have nothing to do with government. And the sooner we can disestablish religion in America, in other words, get rid of the tax breaks, get rid of, you know, forbid uh, priests and Protestant clergymen from officiating at public events it should be a black mark against any clergyman who goes and, and says a prayer at Congress or who participates in the inauguration of the president or who or who is called for for to give advice in the White House i I, I don't have bad 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 thoughts about Billy Graham but I think Billy Graham did a lot of harm in the sense of encouraging the false presumption that the, that the presidents of the United States, the political leadership of the United States, have deep spiritual convictions and that they turn to the clergy for, for, uh, for comfort, consolation, and inspiration. That was all just window dressing for all of them.
0: I think you've said uh, several times over the last six months, Dr. Fleming, both uh, on the podcast and, and on your articles on, on the website, that you may not necessarily care a lot for Donald Trump, but he's evoking this sympathetic reaction because people somewhere viscerally agree with some of the things that he says. and. To bring it back to to my side of the ocean, I think that the French don't realize that their visceral dislike of the Burkini is not because of their love of laïcité, but because maybe somewhere buried deep down, there's a suspicion of the Saracen. (laughs) There's a suspicion of what happens when Islam invades its way in. Uh, And and so when they have this reaction and try to make the argument that it's, oh, it's because of laïcité, they have shown that the revolution runs its course, uh, to, to, to this current place where, well, it's not so much that we care, uh, whether you're Christian or Islam, just, we don't want to offend anybody. Uh, uh, we, we want everyone to get along and having no, no state conviction means that ultimately you don't care about anything. Yeah,
1: no, I, I, I think you're right. I think in, uh, it's like in America where we have trouble with public prayer and so some genius came up with the idea of a mo- let's have a moment of silence. Well, a moment of silence is a prayer to the God who doesn't exist. And that's the, that's the American religion. The moment of silence to honor the, 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 the fact that there is no God.
0: Well, listeners, we won't give you a moment of silence here on this episode. We'll have to let it go there. Dr. Fleming, thanks for your time today. If you have any questions about any of the points made today, please email thomas at fleming.foundation. We want to remind you that From Under the Rubble is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to james at fleming.foundation. As always, thank you to our Gold and Charter members who we produce these podcasts for and who ensure that they can be produced in the first place. Again, I want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time. And until next time, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.